the Apostle Peter said, where else shall we go? You, Jesus, have the words of eternal life. It's right for us to be here. It's right for us to be hearing from God and his word. Let's pray that he would speak to us now. Lord, we do wait for you. Your timing is perfect. Your way is perfect. And and we come to you now to hear from you and your word, the words of eternal life, Lord. We cannot understand apart from your help. So we pray that you would move by your spirit through, through my words and through all of our meditations that we would understand what you're trying to tell us and that we would believe it, some of us even for the first time. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. If you've got your Bible with you, we're going to be in Luke chapter 8, the gospel according to Luke. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to have the words up on the screen so you can follow along with us. We're starting a new, uh, a new sermon series this morning, so as uh, is usually the custom, Pastor Ryan takes a sabbatical over the summer so that he can work on some other writing projects, and so uh, kind of as part of that, we've got this new series that we're doing and certain of the parables in the gospel according to Luke. So parables, as we'll discover over the next few weeks, are um, stories or illustrations that Jesus uses to teach us about his kingdom. And so we're going to go into this first, uh, what is in all of the, uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the, the front-loaded parable, as it were, kind of the, the most important one that helps us understand the rest of the parables in many ways. So this is in Luke chapter 8, and we're going to be in verses 4 through 15. So let me read this passage, Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 4, and then we'll hear the words of eternal life. When a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, Jesus said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. These are the words of our Lord. So we're wanting to put... Uh, lawn in our backyard because right now there is no lawn in our backyard. When we moved into our house, it was mostly just weeds 
and hard-packed, nasty, sandy dirt. And so we knew that, that what was in our backyard was not going to be sufficient soil quality to put any kind of grass in there and that we would need to somehow put nutrients back into the soil for us to have a lawn. And because we are kind of weird people and cheap, we decided to try a natural method for putting nutrients back into our ground. And that involved planting a cover crop. So that meant that we put down a layer of compost so that we could grow in it various kinds of uh, wheat and grass that are all kind of meant to put their roots down and till up the soil, draw some nutrients up, and then as we till them back into the ground, it'll put more nutrients into the ground. I don't really know how it's supposed to work, but the guy on YouTube was really confident. (laughs) So that's what we're doing. And the first step after we put some compost down was we had to sow this special seed mix into the ground. And so we went with the whole family, including our four-year-old daughter. We had big buckets with this special seed mix, and we were, you know, it's called broadcast sowing. So you're just kind of throwing it out with your hand all over the place. And I thought, you know, even if this doesn't work, at least I'll have a sermon illustration. (laughs) And sure enough, it's a lot harder than you would think it is to get that seed to go in just the place that you want it to. It just kind of goes all over the place. Some of it went onto my patio. Some of it went off of the designated place where we want to grow grass eventually. And the birds. Oh, man, the birds. I mean, the next day, it was like they were having a field day. But that was about two months ago. If you go into my backyard now, there is wheat growing in my backyard about four or five feet tall. So, so it worked, at least so far. So good. I'll keep you posted. But the hope with all of that is that it will remineralize our soil so that we can have what we really want. It's all about the soil. And so it is with this parable. So let's get into this passage. We'll begin with verses 4 through 8, the telling of the parable. And before Jesus even gives the parable, Luke gives us some context. So in verse 4 it says, When a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to Jesus. There's a lot of interest in Jesus. There has been this growing interest all through the gospel according to Luke. These crowds of people coming to hear this man who some people think is the Messiah. And what's really interesting, even up to this point in the gospel according to Luke, is the different kinds of responses that Jesus is teaching has already gotten. When Jesus was in Nazareth, they taught in a synagogue there, and they tried to kill him by throwing him off a cliff. They did not like what he had to say. We have elsewhere seen already the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, they have already started plotting together what they might do to Jesus, which is to kill him at the end of the book. As I said, there's other crowds who are just coming mostly to maybe see if they can get healed or have a demon cast out of them like Jesus has been doing, or maybe they're just curious and hearing this great man's preaching. And yet there have been some, and in Luke's story, they are the people that you would least expect. A tax collector named Levi, a poor, sinful fisherman named Peter, even at the beginning of chapter 8, a woman named Mary Magdalene who had seven demons cast out of her. These people that are the lowliest and the poorest and the most sinful by all appearances, they are the ones that they hear the teaching of Jesus and they hear it the words of eternal life. They've come repenting of their sins. They've come wanting to love and follow Jesus because they know in him is forgiveness. 
So as Jesus has been going around, there have been these different responses to what he has been saying. And here in chapter eight, there's another great crowd. You see that? It's a great crowd from town after town. And, and Jesus addresses them. So you can imagine they're all gathered together in some large place, maybe a field where, where Jesus can speak to him and his voice would, would go out to them. And so he stands up to talk and you can imagine a hush just falls over this whole crowd. And verse, the end of verse four says that he spoke a parable. Verse five, a sower went out to sow his seed. If you don't know what the word parable is, it, it means something like a word picture. Okay? It's something that is uh, using imagery to make a, a teaching point or an illustration. And for Jesus, whenever he would use these parables, he would always use images that were from everyday, ordinary life. When he says, a sower went out to sow seed, everybody knew immediately what that looked like. Most of them probably had sowed seed at some point in their life. And just like I figured out in my backyard, you cannot control where the seed lands. And that's where he's getting at. As the sower sowed, some of the seed fell along the path. And it was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it. So imagine, this is hard-packed ground, either through the field or on the side of the field. There's no way the seed can get in. Verse 6, some of the seed fell on the rock. Now when he says rock, don't, don't, I know you're thinking they're escaping. That's not it. This is not gravel. What this is actually saying is it's a layer of limestone under the soil. Okay, So very near the surface, but maybe there's a couple of inches of dirt before you get to rock that you just can't go into. So the farmer doesn't know. He's throwing the seed, but there is rock under the soil. And so Jesus says, as the seed grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture And some of the seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. So these thorns are probably something like a thistle weed, okay? It's a a really bad weed that can grow up like four feet tall, and so it blocks the sun from anything else, and its roots grow really, really thick, and it just sucks all of the nutrients out of the ground before anything else can get to it. That's what Jesus says, that some of the seed landed where those thorns were, and so even though it started growing, It didn't have what it needed, and it died. And then lastly, verse 8, some of the seed fell into good soil, and it grew, and it yielded a hundredfold. Now, it's interesting. Already at this point, you can uh, notice a little detail. Look at the prepositions that Jesus uses. So it says that some seed fell along the path, some fell on the rock, some fell among the thorns, but what's the last one? It fell into the good soil. So already we see a big difference between that last one. This is the only one that actually went into the soil. And that's the key. And not just that it went into the soil, but this was good soil. There were no obstacles. The birds could not get to it. There was no rock underneath. There were no thorns there. This is good soil. The seed went down into it. And what happens? It bears fruit. It bears fruit 100-fold. That means a lot. And then look at the end of verse 8. As Jesus said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then he's done. So pretend you don't know how the rest of this goes. 
right? You're just one of those people that has come out of your town to this great crowd to hear this man that everybody is talking about and that you're interested to hear what it is that he has to say. And he stands up and the hush descends and he tells you a weird story about a farmer and the different places that his seed fell. And then he says, if you have ears to hear, hear. What do you do? How do you react to that? I know some people would have heard that and said, this This is the guy? This is the guy that everybody's, really, this is what we're all excited about? That didn't even make sense. I don't get it. But you, you hear that, and you hear what he says there at the end. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And you know that that's Jesus saying, there's more here. This is not just a story about a farmer and seed. There's something in this for you, but you have to listen. You have to listen critically. I want you to go and I want you to think about this because it matters. You may not know this, but what exactly makes a parable a parable is hard to define. If you read the Old Testament, they use the word parable a lot, but they use it to describe a really wide variety of things. It can, it can mean something that's sort of like a proverb and something that's like a riddle, or it can mean something that's a long, extended allegory. And so to kind of say, what is it that these things all have in common, it's a little, it's a little hard to pin down. Even Jesus, who Jesus used parables more than anybody. Jesus made parables a central part of his teaching, especially after this moment. He's teaching in parables all the time. But even Jesus' parables, there's a really wide variety. Some of them are really short. Some of them are really long. Some of them are more just like descriptions of something. Others of them are like this one, kind of a complex, long allegory, a story that has different meanings to different parts of what's going on. But the one thing that all of Jesus' parables have in common is that there's an element of comparison. One way or another, Jesus is saying, this is like this. And what is Jesus comparing these illustrations or these descriptions to? They're all about the kingdom. Every one of the parables of Jesus is in one way or another Jesus saying the kingdom is like this. And so it is here. But rather than Jesus just coming out and telling you the kingdom is like this, he does it indirectly through a parable. And the whole way that that is supposed to work is it's supposed to engage you and it's supposed to intrigue you and it's supposed to draw you in. He's not just going to put it out there for you directly because if he just puts it out there directly, then you could just take it or leave it. But a parable means for you to enter into it and to consider it and to weigh it. And when you do that, you start to realize, oh, there's so much here. Or else you don't. And you think it's just nonsense and you walk away. And that's the whole point. So look at these next verses, verses 9 and 10. This is the purpose of the parables. So verse 9 says, His disciples asked him what this parable meant. And let me say, that is the right response, right here. They hear Jesus teach this story, and he says, If you have ears to hear, hear. And the disciples recognize what Jesus is saying. There's something more here. This matters. I need to know. There's a sense of urgency. I need to know what he's talking about but I need help. And so they do exactly what we all should do. They go straight to the source and they ask God himself for more understanding. They understand that they are dependent on Jesus for understanding the things that he's saying and that's true of all of us. 
Because all of us come to the reading of God's word, to the hearing of God's word. We all come with sinful, hard hearts. And if it wasn't for God's grace and God's work, we wouldn't be able to understand what God is trying to tell us. That is why every Sunday, you pay attention to this, every Sunday, either it's a song or someone praying or the preacher himself praying, but every time we come to open up God's word, we have a prayer of illumination. It means lighting up. We need the spirit to come in and light up our understanding so that God's word would come along with knowledge that we would know what it is that God is trying to teach us. And I think that's a good discipline for you. Every time you open up the Bible to just pray a prayer recognizing, God, if you don't tell me what this says, I cannot understand it. I need your illuminating work. But when I say that we need the Spirit's help illuminating what the scriptures mean, what I don't mean is that there is some secret meaning or some, you know, you ever see the people that do like the Bible code? That's not what I mean. That's not how it works. The Bible does not have secret meanings buried into it that only certain people have special access to, okay? Parables work that way because they're an allegory, because they're meant to have a deeper meaning. And Jesus is telling you this has a deeper meaning. But a lot of the Bible, very straightforward. We can understand what it's saying. We know it means what the author meant for it to mean. But when I say that we need the Spirit's help understanding what this says, I don't mean that we need help understanding the words. I mean we need help believing that it's true. We need the Spirit's help to teach us that this is real, that this is God's word. And that it matters for us. And so every Sunday, every time you open up the Bible, we ask God, please teach me, help me understand this. This is what the disciples do. They go to Jesus, they say, Jesus, we hear this word, we know there's something to it, but we can't understand it. Will you help us understand? And what does Jesus say? Of course I will. Verse 10, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. When Jesus says that they're secrets, all he means is what I was saying, that, yeah, you're going to need help understanding this. But here's the thing. I want you to understand it. I want you to know what I'm talking about. Jesus is a good teacher. Makes me think of James 1, 5. If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Ask and you will receive. God doesn't want to hold back his revelation from you. So if you come asking, you will receive. But, still in verse 10, for others, they are in parables, so that seeing, they may not see, and hearing, they may not understand. Mark's account of this passage gives the wording a little differently. Jesus says, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. So Mark makes a bit more explicit what Luke is certainly presuming when he says that it is for others that they are in parables. What both of these writers are talking about is that there is an inside and an outside group. There are two groups Inside and outside what? The kingdom of God. There are those who are inside the kingdom of God to whom Jesus wants to reveal the secrets, but to those who are outside the kingdom of God, everything is in parables so that they would not understand. So the question you should be asking is, well, how do I get into the kingdom of God? And the answer is easy. Faith. 
Faith alone. This is what we've been studying in the book of Galatians. You come into the kingdom of God, into this community and into this realm where God reigns as sovereign over your life and he is already extending the end times promises of his full reign in the new heavens and the new earth. The kingdom of God, the place where Jesus rules as king. You come into that kingdom by faith. So what these What Jesus is saying here is that these two groups are just those who have faith and those who do not have faith. And here's the amazing thing about the parables, why they're so fascinating, is one parable accomplishes two purposes depending on which group you're in. The same parable does two very different things depending on if you hear it with faith or if you don't have faith. For those who have ears to ear, who have faith, and it's from faith that we come to God saying, give me more understanding, help me know this, I want to know. That's that's the cry of faith. From faith, for those who hear the parables, well, what? The parables become these incredible teaching tools. They become these amazing illustrations that just make the kingdom of God so much more clear to us and understanding its its amazing reversals and and what is expected of us to live as people in the kingdom of God. The kingdom, the the parables make the kingdom of God very clear. And that's why we love the parables. They're great teaching tools. Jesus is a master teacher. But for those who don't have faith, the parables serve the exact opposite purpose. They conceal faith the kingdom of God. They keep the kingdom of God a secret from those who don't have faith and don't want to understand. And that's why Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter six. So that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter six. If you haven't read Isaiah in a while, Isaiah chapter six is is this amazing moment at the beginning of Isaiah's ministry where he sees the Lord on his throne high and lifted up and, and God atones for his sin by touching his lips with a sacrifice, a coal from a sacrifice. And, and then God says, who will go for me? Whom shall I send? And you remember Isaiah is there and he says, here I am, send me. We love that part. We love, here I am, send me. If you've ever been to like some sort of missions organization, they you know, will bring that one out. Don't you want to be the one that's raising your hand? And that's great. But what we don't often think about is the fact that God was commissioning Isaiah to go on a mission of failure. God says, okay, Isaiah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out and I want you to preach my word and nobody's gonna listen to you. They're gonna have ears, but they're not gonna hear what you're saying. They're gonna have eyes, but they're not gonna see. They're not gonna understand because if they did understand and turn, I would heal them. But they're not going to. And so I'm sending you out as an act of judgment to them. Israel, whom Isaiah was sent to, they had hard hearts. They had really hard hearts. They didn't want God to reign over them. They didn't like God's law. They didn't like God's word. And they were happy if God would have just left them well enough alone. And so God knows when he sends Isaiah out proclaiming his word, they're going to hate him for it. And they're going to hate the word because they don't want God to rule over their lives. They were already under judgment. And Isaiah going out preaching that word and them rejecting it makes their judgment sure. And God says, Isaiah, I am going to bring the Babylonians and they are going to conquer my people as an act of judgment against them for their hardness of heart. And then I'm going to judge them again. And there's going to be this one little remnant left that has ears to hear, that has faith. But you're going out and preaching the word. It's really an act of judgment on them. And Jesus says, so it is for me even more so. 
That's why I'm teaching in parables. I am teaching as an act of judgment on this people. And that helps us understand what's often called the messianic secret. That Jesus' preaching is an act of condemnation for those who have already hearts predisposed to reject him and to reject his kingdom. And that's why, God, or that's why Jesus says, they're not going to understand. I don't want them to understand. I want this to make very clear who has faith and who doesn't. And this is going to harden their hearts. The Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says that through the apostles and then through his own people, God spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of himself everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, this is a fragrance from death to death. To the other, this is a fragrance from life to life. So we go out and we preach the gospel. We, we smell like God, Paul says, as we go out. And some people are going to smell the aroma of Christ and they are going to be drawn into Christ because it smells so sweet to them. And some people are gonna smell that smell and it's gonna smell like death. And they are going to run far away from it. But that same word is going to make clear who is in which group. The gospel is like cilantro. Either you love it or you think it tastes like soap. But it just makes clear, the preaching makes clear who is in which group. Charles Spurgeon put it much more poetically than that. He said, the same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. So Jesus says, that's why I am revealing this to you but I am concealing it from those who are on the outside. And there's another important reason for this concealing work of Jesus' parables of his word. Again, what I said is the, the messianic secret. The reason that Jesus is not always making his kingdom obvious and clear. I don't know if you've ever wondered that. I know that I had seasons in my life where I just thought, why didn't Jesus just like go into the middle of Jerusalem? This is what Satan tempted him to do, isn't it? Go into the middle of Jerusalem and just, I don't know, transfigure himself so that everybody could see, oh, I get it. He's the son of God. Why doesn't he do that for you now? If he really wants you to believe in him, why doesn't he just make it obvious? Well, if you read the gospel accounts, you have to remember how the story ends. Where does it end? As somebody once said, all of the Gospels are just passion, or passion stories with an extended introduction. They're all about the cross. All of the Gospel stories are leading up to the cross. The whole purpose that Jesus came was to die. Was to die for your sins. As a substitute for your sins. And then not just to die, but to be raised. And it's through his resurrection that, that the kingdom comes. Comes now, it's already breaking in. So if Jesus had stood up in the middle of Jerusalem and let everybody know that he was the Son of God in a way that nobody could argue with, what would have happened? There'd be no cross. They wouldn't have condemned him. And then where would we be? Or at the same time, and I think this is probably more likely because even if Jesus had transfigured himself in front of everyone, the people with hard hearts would still have rejected it. They still would have said, I, I, I still don't buy it. I don't think that that's real. I mean, he did miracles, right? 
they didn't want to have anything of it. But if, but if Jesus revealed himself too soon, maybe the Pharisees would have stepped in right away and they would have killed Jesus before the apostles were ready to take over the work of the church. The church would not have had a firm foundation yet. And so everything about Jesus keeping these things secret and only revealing so much at such and such a time, it's all about timing so that it ends at God's perfect timing at the cross so that we can all be saved. This makes sense of why all those times where Jesus heals somebody and he says, don't tell anybody. Because he didn't just come to preach parables. He came to forgive us of our sins by dying on the cross. And so this work that Jesus is doing, this, these parables that they both reveal and conceal, this is what he's trying to tell the disciples. And he says, if you have faith, if you come in, I'll tell you everything. But for those are, that are outside, they're just not going to understand. They're going to hear this and they're going to think it's nonsense. And even if they do understand what the deeper meaning is in these parables, what I'll explain to you, even if they do understand, they're going to hate it. But that's all the way it's supposed to be. That's what Jesus is saying. And in fact, this parable, the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower, this parable is about that principle, that Isaiah, Isaiah 6 principle. So some people have said this parable is a parable about parables and how we understand this revealing and concealing work of the kingdom. So let's, let's look at how Jesus explains this parable to us. This is the meaning of the parable. Beginning in verse 11 Jesus says, now the parable is this. Let me explain it to you. I'm not going to keep it a secret. The seed is the word of God. And the ones along the path are those who have heard. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. So that's what he's getting at with this parable. And if you remember nothing else from Jesus' explanation, just remember this from verse 11, the seed is the word of God. If you remember nothing else, the seed is the word of God. Why does that matter? Church, there's nothing wrong with the seed. The seed is the perfect revelation of God. The seed never changes. A lot of people, when they read this parable, they think that it's alluding in some way to Isaiah chapter 55, where God says that his word is like water. It's like rain that comes down and waters the land, and it gives seed to the sower. But God says there, my word always accomplishes the purposes for which I sent it. My word never fails. In this context, what Jesus is saying is my word goes out and for those that I have determined it's going to be for faith, from faith to faith, it's gonna work that way. And for those it's going to be the stench of death to them, it's going to work that way. My word is going to accomplish the purposes for which I sent it out. There's nothing wrong with the word. And why is that so important? Why is, why is it that I say that's the one thing that you should remember if you remember nothing else? Well, who is the sower in this story? It's a trick question, actually. <laughs> in one sense, the sower is Jesus, isn't it? 
Jesus is talking about himself and everything he's been doing in Luke up to this point. He's been going around from town to town, preaching, casting the seed of the word of God. It's the same word everywhere he goes. He's casting the seed, but he's been getting different responses, hasn't he? And Jesus is telling the disciples this parable so that they wouldn't panic. I mean, just imagine, there's this great crowd here. They're all gathered together. He tells the funny story about the farmer. How many people left and never came back? And you know the disciples are thinking, man, did Jesus just blow it? I thought we were trying to grow a movement here. I thought we were trying to get something happening. Jesus is saying, don't, don't be fooled by appearances. The word is going to accomplish the purpose for which it goes out. Our job, my job, is just to go out and sow the seed. It's the same word in different hearts will receive it or not. And so in one sense, the sower is Jesus. But in another sense, the sower is all of us. In chapter 9, Jesus is going to send the disciples out to do the exact same thing that he's been doing, to proclaim the kingdom of God. And so he's preparing them. Hey, look, it's not up to you to go out and do a soil analysis on somebody before you preach. Just preach. Scatter the seed everywhere. You don't have control over where it's going to land. That part's not up to you. You just preach the gospel. And this is for us. This is the word for us. Church, sow the seed. Sow it liberally. Just throw it around, okay? Nothing bad can happen by throwing the seeds. Not for you. Invite your neighbor over for dinner and ask them for their permission if you can just tell them about the gospel why you believe in Jesus, why, why they see you leave every Sunday to go to church, why hopefully you're such a good neighbor. Grab a copy of Greg Gilbert's book, What is the Gospel, and give it to the guy at the desk next to you in your office and say, hey, if you read this, can we talk about this over lunch? If you sit next to somebody in class, ask them if they will come to church with you. I'll, I'll sow the seed. And then you can sow some more seeds at lunchtime, but church, we just need to go out and sow the seeds. And you know what? You're going to do that enough, and some people are going to respond really hardly to that. But some people are going to believe. You don't know where the soil is. And so that's what this parable is saying is go out, sow the seed. The seed is the word of God. You can't mess it up. Just sow the seed. There's nothing wrong with the seed. What does it come down to? The soil. It comes down to the condition of the soil. And so at this point, it might be a little confusing because I said everything boils down to one of two kinds of people. Either you believe or you don't believe, but then Jesus says that there's actually four kinds of people. So which is it? Is it two or four? Well, the answer is still two. This parable is actually making that point, and we need to get this right or else we can get off into some really errant theology, I think. The first three places where these seeds fall, they're all examples of bad soil. Okay, this is, this is actually how all of the parables work. If you read any of other, Jesus' other parables, if, if there's more than two elements in them, okay, more, more than two elements or more than two characters in the story, Jesus always groups the first together. They're all the same kind, and then the last one is the different one. It's the same here. These first three, even though they're variations of the same theme, they're all one kind. They're all bad soil, and the one at the end is the difference. And remember that with the prepositions. This is the one that it went into. 
And that's really important, I say, because it's obvious to us that the first soil, the one that fell on the path, that's clearly unbelievers, right? They don't even entertain the idea. They just hear it, and it means nothing to them, and they reject it out of hand. But the second and the third soils, the rocky soil and the soil with the thorns, well, those seeds seem to show signs of growth, don't they? And, and some people will read this parable and they'll see it. We'll see the second and the third showed signs of growth. That means they were saved and then they lost their salvation. Well, not to mention that that would disagree with, I think, everything else the Bible says about whether or not a true elect believer can lose their salvation. But also, that's not the right way to read parables. They're all the same kind. But what's really interesting is Jesus is saying, unbelief takes a number of different forms. And so we need to be on guard for this. So let's consider each one of these soils in turn briefly. So Jesus says the first is the seed that fell on the path. And he attributes their unbelief as ultimately being the result of Satan coming in, snatching that word, not letting that person hear the word of God. It's interesting that he uses birds because in the Old Testament, birds were always kind of an omen of a bad battle, okay? And the birds would come and they would eat the bodies that had died in battle, the bodies of Israel's enemies. And so, so the bird is a, is a bad thing. Jesus is saying it's Satan, it's coming away. But I also think that the hardness of the ground, this is hard-packed ground, is a great picture of what it looks like for somebody that has this first soil. I mean, there's just no getting in there. It just bounces right off like it's solid rock. I remember sharing the gospel with a friend one time. And we sat down, we had dinner, we were having a great time. And look, look y'all, I have never shared the gospel better, I'm pretty sure. This was the best I have ever shared the gospel with anybody. And me and this guy, we've got a great relationship. We've been friends for a long time. And, and I knew all of his objections and I had, you know, good answers to everything that he was kind of bringing up. And, and we went back and forth for a long time. And I know this guy's a smart guy. So I know as I was explaining these things to him, he was understanding the concepts as I was explaining them to him. And, and so as I was laying that all out there and I was finally done and I said, okay, what do you think? And he said, well, if that's Christianity, I don't want it. That does not sound like good news to me. That's the first soil. That's a hard heart. And it wasn't because there was anything wrong with the word. That was just where he was. And, and I pray, and I still pray for this guy. I still pray that maybe he gets hit with seeds a bunch of time, and then it's like a cover crop, and eventually his soil will, will turn into good soil. But at that time, as I shared it with him, that was the response I got. It was a first soil kind of response. It was just outright, nope, I don't want that. I don't believe that. And it was really disappointing. And the second soil looks completely different from that. It looks totally different. The response that you get from somebody with a second soil heart, it was completely different at first. Okay, the, Jesus says the second soil is those that they hear it, and what? They receive it with joy. They're excited. In Mark's version, Jesus says that this plant immediately springs up. Okay, they're in it. They're ready. They're, they're sincere, and they're excited. But there are lots of reasons to be excited about the gospel that aren't the real gospel. Somebody can get excited about what you have explained to them of the gospel because they see that along with it comes this great community of friends that they get to be with. And they may not even be aware of this. I think they are sincerely thinking they're believing the gospel. Or they hear what you're offering them and they think, oh, this will satisfy some weird spiritual esoteric curiosity that I have. This is kind of the place where I want to be now. They hear that and, and they think, you know, I do feel really guilty. I do feel a lot of shame. And so 
I can, I can believe this and, and that'll go away, but they're not believing in it for the right reasons. Whatever it is that they think they're believing in, it's not King Jesus. It's not the gospel. But they're really excited about it. And sadly, I think it's way too common in, in our evangelical culture, thankfully not in this church, but in other churches, and for many, many decades, it has been really, really common to celebrate these second soil responses, these quick, joyful responses without considering that it might not be genuine conversion. Somebody professes faith, and then we're just like, all right, we did it. Let's get them in the water, and then we can tell our denomination that we got another convert. And there's no telling how much damage that has done to people because we act like the second soil doesn't exist. But it does. And we know that it does because Jesus says that even though they spring up quickly, even though they receive it with joy, when the time of testing comes, they fall away. They abandon the gospel. They don't believe in Jesus anymore. Matthew and Mark use the words persecution and tribulation. So I think altogether we can just say any kind of difficulty, any kind of challenge that comes from the word of God, any kind of challenge where you're put in this position where you have to choose, am I going to follow Jesus and suffer? Or am I going to fall away and be relieved? Well, those people whose seed was sown in the second soil, when it comes to that time of testing, they're out. Because it's not worth it to them. As excited as they were at first, oh, this is what it means? Yeah, I don't want any of that. There was another man that I shared the gospel with. And this was a guy that I just walked up to, you know, never met him before. And I said, hey, can I tell you about Jesus? He's like, sure. So we sat down at the table. And I talked for maybe 10 minutes. I don't even think that I got to, like, anything important yet. And he was like, yeah, I believe. I want that. I was like, really? You sure? Let me, let me explain this, you know. So I kept on going, yeah, no, I want that. Look, I, my life's a mess. I'm really depressed, and I used to go to church when I was little, and I know I need God. I believe, I believe the gospel. And I said, well, man, that's, that's great, and I hope you do, but I think you need to understand a little bit more what's going on. So how about this? How about you and I start meeting once a week, and we'll read the gospel of Mark, and, and I can keep kind of helping you understand this, because I really do. If you believe this, I want you to believe, and I want you to keep on believing, He's like, yeah, yeah, that's great. And I said, hey, also, why don't you start coming to church with me on Sundays? And, and so he did, he did all of this. And we met together, and he was coming to church with us, and things were going really great. And then he got a girlfriend. So I was thinking, okay, good. This is a good chance to talk about what the Bible says about marriage and about sex and sex before marriage. And Oh, yeah, I, okay. I don't think I want this anymore. He was really excited about it. At first, but when it came to that time of testing where he had to prove whether or not he would obey Jesus in everything, trust Jesus in everything, or, or go his own way, well, he fell away. And he did. And obviously that, that example overlaps a lot with this third soil too because there Jesus specifically talks about being choked out by the pleasures of this life. So he sprung up quickly but then it was because of this desire for pleasure that whatever response was there, it was proven to not be genuine. And so I think you can even see just in that example that, that third soil, second soil, first soil, this is not a precise exercise, okay? The parables were not meant to be, you know, a systematic theology book, okay? The parables are just illustrations of these principles. 
But like I said, the third soil is very similar to the second soil in that there's signs of growth. It says it grows. The, the fruit, the, the tree, the plant grows, but along with it grow these thorns. The, the love for the riches and cares and the pleasures of this life, they were never weeded out. And so as those things grew up, that seed died. So it's just like those thistle plants. You know, they grow so tall and the sun can't get to the plant that you're trying to grow and the, the roots are sucking out nutrients from the ground. I think you can think of these things, riches and cares and pleasures of this life as those roots that come in and they take your nutrients away. So, so think about all of the effort that you spend, all of the money that you spend, Think about the things that you spend time thinking about where your attention goes, the things that you are pursuing. Think of all of that energy, all of that effort, even your money. Think of all of those things as nutrients. They're going to something. They are feeding something. You are watering something. What is it? If you take an assessment of your, of your last week, of your last year, what would you say? Yeah, this is the thing that I'm watering in my life. Is it some hobby? Is it a sports team? Is it your kid's sports team? Is it a degree? Is it a promotion? Is it getting your house to look a certain way? Is it raising your kids a certain way? I'm not saying that those are necessarily bad things, but is that what you want growing up the most in your life? Because if you let those things grow up, I promise it will choke out your seed of faith. And whatever faith you think you have will be proven to be false faith. We need to give our attention, our time, our thoughts, our loves, not to things in this world, but to Jesus, to the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and all of these other things will be added to you. But you have to seek the kingdom first. And the last soil is true faith. Jesus says, verse eight, some of the seed fell into good soil. And it grew and it yielded a hundredfold. That's what we're praying for. We're praying for good soil. We're praying for good soil when we go out to share the gospel. I used to pray this all the time. I would go out and do, you know, what's called contact evangelism, where you're just walking up to strangers and telling them about Jesus. I love that stuff. But I would always pray, God, just lead me to the guys that have good soil. I don't know where they are, but you do. And you can make this a lot easier for me today. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sow that seed, but Lord, you know. So lead me to somebody that has good soil. I pray that when I come into the pulpit. I know that it's the word that has power. It's not anything that I do, but I'm still praying that you guys have good soil. I pray that there's people here who aren't believers, that that would be the day where the seed goes down and they believe. If you're not a believer, ask God. Ask God for good soil. Ask God to, to till up and prepare your heart so that you would understand these things. Just like the disciples in verse nine, ask Jesus for help. And even if you think you are a believer, and I hope, I hope that you are, even if you are a believer, I think even though this parable is primarily about the way that non-believers respond to the word of God versus how believers, true believers respond to the word of God, I still think that we as believers should see these other bad examples as cautionary. That we should be led by this to avoid a hard-heartedness that we should be 
desiring that God would help our roots to go down really, really deep, that we wouldn't have a shallow faith, we'd have a really strong faith, and that we should especially be on guard against riches and cares and pleasures in this life, that we should be assessing ourselves. It's like, man, is that a thorn? Am I giving too much attention to this thing and it's killing my faith? We should repent. I think when you come on Sunday mornings, you should come here and you should say every Sunday, God, give me, give me good soil. I want to hear what he's going to say and I'm distracted by a lot of other things. God, just give me good soil now so it'll come in and it'll come in deep. We want good soil. So what does good soil look like? In verse 15, Jesus says three things. He says, as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast. They hold it fast. They persevere. They don't, they don't fall away. They don't depart from it. And this, this is ultimately how you know who a true convert is. They hold fast to the word until the very end. They never fall away. So that's why I said when, when this man said that he believed in Jesus, I said, I hope so. Keep on believing. And I want to walk with you, and I want, I want to try and help you on this journey, but I want to see that you continue in faith, and, and he didn't. And parents, I think this is a really, really good lesson for us as we try to share the gospel with our children, especially, especially little kids. Okay, if, if your kid grows up in, in a Christian home, they better be hearing the gospel often, they better be seeing that you love Jesus. And of course, your little kids are going to love what you love. And so, so I hope that they would profess faith in Christ really, really early because we're laying it out there for them. But when your kid professes faith in Jesus, you, you should say, that's great. Hold fast to that faith. You say you believe. Let's keep on believing, okay? I'm, I'm excited for you. I hope that this is really true, and I, and I want to see. I want to keep on going, and, and so we're going to keep on walking with you, and we're going we're gonna to keep on testing this, okay? Me and mom, you know what we're going to do is we're going to try our very best to help you put those roots down really, really deep, okay? We're going to kind of try and keep on teaching you these things, and we're going to do our best to take the thorns out of our own home so that we're not teaching you to love the world, okay? We're going to do everything that we can to try and help, by God's grace, to cultivate this soil, but, but we want to see, and as they get older, they'll come to a time of testing. They'll come to a time where they'll have to choose between the things of this world or, or Jesus. And then you'll get a better idea of what's going on there to see if they really love Jesus or, or if they haven't just been taught really well by their parents, but they haven't believed yet. Okay, But we're not in any kind of rush to get our kids to profess faith in Jesus. We want genuine faith, not false conversions. They hold fast to the faith. And then secondly, in verse 15, Jesus says they hold fast to it in an honest and good heart. Just from reading Luke, you would know exactly what an honest and good heart looks like. It looks like all of the people that have already come to Jesus contrite, confessing that they're sinners and repenting. They're not proud. They're not hypocrites. They come in genuineness and earnestness and they, they see in Jesus the forgiveness of their sins. And because of that, they love Jesus. They have an honest and good heart. And lastly, they bear fruit with patience. They bear fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, with patience. That word patience also means endurance. They remain in this place of bearing fruit all the way until the very end. They hope 
and that harvest that is to come, that hundredfold harvest. And so because of their hope, their future hope, the hope in the resurrection, they can endure anything in this life and even bear fruit in it. That's good soil. And I saw some amazing examples of good soil this week. We saw good soil in Casey Landis. We all know the fruit that Casey bore in our church, in our lives. We know that she had an honest and a good heart. And brothers and sisters, Casey held fast to that word with patience all the way until the very end. So we know, praise God, she was a real believer. She she didn't depart even in the last moments. And now she is experiencing her reward. She's got that hundredfold blessing now. And more to come. And I, got, I saw good soil in her husband, Brett. I went to go be with Brett this week. And, and when I was on my way, you know, I'm driving in the car and I'm like, what do you say? What do I say to my friend? So I was thinking, okay, I could, I, we go to this, this verse and we can go to this passage and we can do this and, and I can remind him of this, this truth and we need to remember this. And so I came in already and, you know, that, there was Brett and I gave him a big hug. And then he started telling me everything that I needed to be thinking about. He started taking me to all of the different places in the Bible that he's finding his hope in, that we all need to be finding our hope in. There it is. If there was ever a time of trial, time of testing, this is it. And that brother's roots are down so deep. So deep. So that when it came, he didn't fall away. He was stronger. I was thinking, I saw Brett, and I thought, you know, a good Christian is like a drought-tolerant plant. It gets hot, and the soil dries up, and those roots are just going to go down deeper. And they're going to get stronger looking for that living water in the word. Brett had good soil. Brett has good soil. And thank God that that seed was planted a long time ago because the time of trial is not when you want to be figuring out your theology. But he had it. And he, he preached to me the hope of the resurrection. What we look forward to. He was bearing fruit with patience in that time. And we praise God for that. And so may all of our seeds be planted in good soil like that. And may our roots just go down deeper. May we bear fruit until that day, even this morning. Amen. Let's pray. Yes, God, I pray for good soil in this room that we would all hold fast to your word in an honest and good heart and that we would bear fruit with patience. Lord, as so many of us are feeling that time of testing now, God, keep us from falling away. Help us to to put our roots down deep into the truth that we know, what you have revealed to us. Most of all, that Jesus has risen from the dead. And so we have hope. God, I pray if there's anyone here that hasn't hasn't believed in you yet, Lord, that, that the words that I have spoken, your word, would go down deep into their soil, into their heart 
and that you would cause it to grow and keep anything from stopping it and that it would bear fruit, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.